morning and welcome to your daily game phase. I'm Dr. Kimberly Landon, getting a late start this morning. Uh, and my lovely producer, <laughs> Lou Blasey, is here See, with me. No one's going to care about that a day or two from now when they're watching it on replay. They don't know that you were late. I know, but I have to, I have to out myself. I was late today. See, there's a curtain. You can Actually, keep, you can keep some things right behind the curtain. Were you? Yeah. I, was, I wasn't really listening to you. <laughs> Did you see that? I was like, yep. yeah, I'm not listening to yep. you. Yep. Uh, how does that feel? <laughs> Typical. <laughs> um, so anyway, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah. So so I have a very um, interesting weekend. Yeah. Coming, yes. coming up a little past weekend. Uh, no, this past weekend. Yep. So, well, um, so the latter part of the weekend um after the work week so i was in on business and i can tell you now so that people before people go oh my god she was away and didn't quarantine i had my oh. first covid test oh god i had i had my nose <laughs> my brain oh swab. you had the brain scan i had my brain scan yeah Woo! it was quite something so i am negative okay um so i'm not sick which i knew because i was extremely careful right. um but anyway so i was I did go and do some business travel this weekend, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and you know from what I gather, um, COVID really doesn't exist in Florida <laughs> <laughs> because it's like it, it's it's a whole open. other yeah. world. Yeah, it's like Hampton Beach. Um, yes. Uh, so uh, and you know and Governor DeSantis on Sunday when I was there on Sunday. Um, Saturday and Sunday, uh, decided to open up the entire state for full-on everything. Yes. And it was like a free-for-all. And I actually, for one once in my life, around, not once, but one of a few times that I was like, wow, I'm actually glad that I am staying in my little bubble a little bit, even though, you know me, I'm just okay with stuff. Oh, no, this was not good. I can. So there was 44,000 cases on the day I came home. Yeah. Per day going on. Mm -hmm. And then he opened it up. I'm thinking... We're not ready for that. And now you got all the people that are going to be doing snowboarding. Because my day, my I was going to talk today about how we're coming into the fall, and we talked about nutrition, and which we're going to talk about. But yeah, there's no COVID apparently in Florida because it's pretty open and yeah. yeah. And it was quite such a stark difference between being up here, regardless of what beliefs are or whatever. I mean, science is science, and you know how I believe is that science is. But oh boy, I'm just I, there was a concern certainly for lots of people that clearly aren't seeing but you had the option to take your own precautions and yeah well that's the thing and, yeah. and i think that that was you know that i don't i felt totally fine and safe and whatever but i was also in a work zone of outside on a beach doing something for a project that i'm doing yeah um in in california so but it was so i felt totally safe and the people i was with i knew and we were all the same kind of thought right. process but when you know, from one night of going to a place where there's outdoor seating for a restaurant and then the next night when everything had fully opened to see a bar fully packed and people on top of each other was like, ooh. And I hadn't seen that since March. So it was very yeah. odd to Whole see that. Whole new world, right? Yeah. So it was just so bizarre. And um, But for people that keep – people have asked me because I know that people knew that in March and April, May, I had been traveling um, as well, that, you know, flights, there's no one on the flights. It's like – ghost town and some people had flown in um from all over um the country for this project that i was doing this weekend they had um i guess american airlines is gonna furlough and and completely shut down after this week yeah um you know so there's a oh, there's airlines have things. issues yeah yeah so so many things that you know unless you're doing some of the flying or traveling or doing that you don't realize because it's not like it's making headline news these days because right. that's not the top of the subject which you know that's fine but you just don't realize but there's hardly anybody in the airport so that's actually a you know, even though tongue in cheek, it's kind of funny that yeah. it's beautiful flying. It's like I have my own jetliner. <laughs> There's no one there. How many people do you think were on your flight? Um, well, I flew Delta, mm -hmm. and they were. Um, I kudos to Delta. They, I usually fly, fly JetBlue, but I did not. I did Delta, and I would say there were maybe 20 people on the whole flight. Yeah, maybe. Wow. And and it was in and out of Orlando on this one. So, um, and there was two rows in between everybody they wrote i mean they again i have not had i've heard horror stories of people on flights in yeah. the past seven months but i have not observed that i have no i've not seen any 
you know, bad intention people. I haven't seen anybody doing anything misbehaving. They have great protocol. Like the whole, even when I went to sit down in the seat, the seat had been newly disinfected and it still had some residual wet. So I was like, oh, that made me feel safer. Yeah. Because yep. <laughs> I knew that they'd actually done it. You know, you always wonder, do they really do it? Um, but it was fantastic. And and the, you know, Orlando Airport, if you've ever flown in and out of Orlando, sure. I would say that it's one of the worst lines in, in like, security lines, two, three-hour wait sometimes. Right. Even if you're doing TSA pre-check like I do, I think it was maybe a minute and a half for me oh, to really? get through the whole thing. Yeah. I was, there was no, it's like beautiful so i mean certainly i want everyone to have their businesses and be able to do all their flying and traveling and vacations but i mean when you're trying to do business and during a pandemic it certainly makes for a good thing um you came from massachusetts so the florida difference looked kind of stark i know it it still kind of boggles my mind when i go to new hampshire now the the way it is and new hampshire isn't particularly isn't wide open like florida is. no right but you still feel like when you go to New Hampshire, you still feel like your store is still in Massachusetts because they're not quite as that. But Florida is like a different world. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't exist. That's why I was saying it is, it, you would be surprised. I walked into one place and the woman, and I'll do my little Southern draw. She's like, honey, you don't need to wear that in here. We don't do that down here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I think I'll be doing that. Can if you want to. Sure. <laughs> huh? Ken, if you want to, sure. Right. So I said, well, I think I'm going to be doing that. And so she said, but you don't have to. I'm thinking, oh, my God, just leave me alone. We have, we have case numbers up. Hospitalizations are fine. The survival right. rate I mean, is what, extraordinary right well, now. Well, so they were reporting. So this is really yeah. interesting. So down in Florida, as they're reporting their 44,000-plus cases per day that is spiking as they're opening up the state, they were actually kudoing on the news channels down there, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, for not having the issue that they're having but it was so ironic because they were talking about this while they're opening up the whole state. Yeah. It was so bizarre. You know, so yeah. the psychology behind that. So it's, fa- it's always fascinating to me that this is happening. I was with some people that were from L.A. also, and they were talking about how they'd been in Utah. And they said the same thing in Utah. It was just like Florida. That There was no, yep. nobody goes with, you know, that. So so I was I was happy to, in some ways, to be, you know, not some ways. I was happy to be from Massachusetts that, you know, we're kind of doing something that feels right, even though it's making people struggle i'm thinking okay well yeah, okay there's a you know there's a it's, you know it's, a, it's six and a half <laughs> yeah you six and one half doesn't you know, you're trying to like make sure that people can work but also make sure people don't die and people don't lose family members and people are respected and it's a lot of movement around the the psychology and the physicality of all the pieces that are moving so i just wanted to share that because i did have my covid test and it was very interesting because moving along in this story so i go to get my covid test Wow. First of all, what an interesting, you know, group of people that come because for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. and you go in and you get your you just register and then you have to get through the drive through to go through to do this. So there must have been a frat party or something locally <laughs> because they there were about 15, 20, early 20, late 19, 20 year olds all together mm-hmm. <laughs> in a caravan of vehicles and. Um, and I thought there was going to be a fist fight going to break out because they all started fighting with each other. I don't know if they all knew each other. They were all giving each other a hard time about not moving fast enough. Then they were yelling at each other, did it hurt? So you could tell some of them knew, but then they were threatening each other. And I thought, oh, wow. my God. And the girl, the, it was the check-in person, um, kept saying, oh, we have fights here. People get angry at each other all the time because the fights? weight. So I'm thinking, this is why would it's a whole so it was a whole new piece what were they of, fighting about they were fighting the about it taking here? too long they were fighting but that's about, not the other person's fault it's, hey remember yeah. what you can control versus yeah. what you can't right so yeah. that's the process it's not the other person isn't delaying it i'm guessing i don't know you right so you would so <laughs> yeah it was just it was very interesting psychologically because here it is that they don't have control i certainly stayed in my own lane because i did not want to have conversations with these no. group of people to start like, hey, you know, let's just all stay in our own lane because you know, I didn't want to get punched. No. But, it, you know, what a different little um, section of the world that I hadn't seen yet because I hadn't had to have a COVID test. But, and she, and the, so the woman at the front desk kept saying, 
oh, this is like daily. And she goes, if we don't have someone hit somebody or threaten to hurt somebody on a daily basis. And really? I was so, I, I was floored because yeah. I said, really? She goes, oh yeah, people get irritated because they don't understand that they have to wait. And why do they have to wait? And how painful it is. But it really, it wasn't. It's just weird. It just yeah. feels weird, you know? So you have things jammed up to your brain. Yeah. But people, you know, nervousness, agitation, they want it when they want it. Why can't they have, just, you know, people just doing oh, we things. we talked about are, this last week that instant gratification and yeah you know right no patience and you know people have no way of no um concept of delaying gratification mm -hmm. these days exactly yeah so that was that was another interesting psychological manifestation of my weekend so and then going into my weekend so i had you know mush came home last week people were asking so yes. mush came home i had multiple issues on the home front mm -hmm. friday yeah lots of like medical issues in the house going on um across the board humans and in my house and um cats yeah so you know so i had you know that was friday and then i went into the saturday sunday um travel and oh it was yeah. it was quite something so i saw you were on last night on on Facebook last night. Oh, you did? Yes. Did because, you like my commentary, which I can't repeat on air? Well, the funny part about it was, uh, the funny part about it was, and I thought you would have found this interesting, and I don't know if you had the same experience. I didn't watch the debate. I did. Because I predicted exactly what was going to happen. It was well, I knew just going to be too much to stupid to destroy my mind. I mean, <laughs> to, to, to give my mind over to at night. So I said, there'll be plenty of commentary tomorrow and tonight. I'll catch up. No big deal. But your comment... In particular, your attitude in particular was pervasive. It was everywhere. People were violently. Um, I wouldn't say my comment was violent. Okay. <laughs> that, I don't think that Let that's me choose accurate. another word. Well, I can't use. So it was. It was a. I have to remember what I wrote now because it was so. Because um, I had some slang terms in there. So people, yeah, people were um, in general, and there were a lot of people that were commenting, and I found it interesting because what I expected was. A very partisan response to this and um, a lot of vitriol against the guy you're not going for. It wasn't, though. It, was it across, wasn't. It was it, a it nice wasn't. even... Every, because everyone, that's collectively, Lou, it was collectively that thing I wrote. It right. was the... Yeah. It was the... And that term came up quite a bit. It was... Yeah. It, it, was, it was a dumpster fire. I, yes. And, it was and, a dumpster fire yeah. and, and people, a whole lot of S show. Oh, God, yeah. And it was... It was like I said, because this has been... Obviously, we're in a very partisan uh, stretch in society right now. Yes. Uh, very polarized, very partisan. And I expected that response in the response to the debate last night. And it wasn't that at all. It was just no. people in general just commenting on the whole it thing was an as a well, whole. It was a collective, right? Yeah. So you would never know, like, which side, if I had a side, I'd come down on. Because I don't ever, you know, I don't put that out there. So, yeah. But the collective whole of the experience I mean, some was, people slipped and stuff like that and gave a little bit of partisanship. But right. mostly they were just but disgusted with the whole it, Because thing. it was so awful. It's exactly what I wrote was exactly yep. what it was and I couldn't sugarcoat that and it was, you know, it captured the fact of my experience. And overall, so I watched it for the fear for the fear for the fear of missing out on something entertaining. There's yep. a good slip, but but also for the for the information to know that wow, what's going on site? I love psychological yeah. case studies. And so at the end of it, all I, you know, you probably saw some of the comments people were saying and I felt this way too is Poor Chris Wallace. <laughs> he needed oh. he needed like a vodka handle at the end of that. I mean, it was uh, actually I got a lot of vitriol against Chris Wallace. <laughs> of course you general. do. Huh? Why? I said of course you no, do. No, I mean I, I on my timeline there was a lot of vitriol. Oh, on yours. Oh. I feel bad for him. I mean, I feel bad for any moderator. I mean, it is the press and all that, but I respect Chris Wallace, you know, I do. Um it, I, I, people were laughing, sending me offshoot text saying, hey, you know, you you should have moderated. And I'm like, well, that would have not, not, not yeah. gone well. Because, but, you know, trying to manage the psychological aspects of saying, hey, get in check. You know, he was trying to be just, you know, hey, knock it off, knock it off. Like, you know, kindergartners and yeah. trying to get them reined in. Um, but at the end of the day, I just felt like, wow, that man, if he has to do that again, which I don't think he does, um, you couldn't pay me enough money to babysit that. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot. It was, was, a, it was, it was such an, a. So it was much an interesting. It was exhausting. Psychologically, it was an interesting touch point in this yes. whole process. It was yes. just the the way I. It wasn't the it wasn't the reaction I expected. Yeah. And what I would have expected if you had said a week ago, if you had kind of described how this 
debate went, I think almost all of us would have said, oh, it sounds entertaining. Right. It's good. But people went into it and actually got it, and it was were disgusted by it. Mm-hmm. And again, just the whole show in general, not... It, you know, yeah, that's... I mean, that was why my commentary was just about yeah. the whole... Nobody left their side, but by the same token, right. no one was complaining about the other guy. They were complaining about the process in yeah, general. The whole, yeah, the whole... It was the yeah. overall picture, and that's, yeah. that's to the comment that I made about the um, dumpster yeah. fire of the S show <laughs> yeah. with the other pieces in it, right? And it was, um, yeah. And, and, it, and it, it was. It was just an exploding disaster. Um, and it's and it's psychologically, so, you know, all kidding aside and all the intro into this. Is and like, I did one of those Facebook posts last night that I retracted. I wrote it. I spent some time writing it, and I said, no, I'm not sending this. And it was like, basically, what do you expect? This isn't Reagan and Lincoln. Right. You know, right. what did you expect you were going to get here? Well, and you, so so if I just take it from the pure psychological pieces, so, you know, I mean, we've got a, so many things going on in the country, period. Yep. Then you get all the, the then you, you add in all the threat generation of each individual person who's watching. Right. And you've got all of the collective of each family. Then you've got the community, the ecosystem, right. you know, and, and then it spreads out. And then you get bipartisanship and you get everybody's sides and then you get, you know, the mudslinging, the yep. bullying, the back. And so the psychology behind all of that, you know, there's so many aspects of social psychology, political psychology, yep. uh, gender psychology, uh, financial psychology. I mean, there, it was just a plethora of information for me. But at <laughs> the end of the day, for any individual to watch that and not be exhausted, I've never seen anything like it. I. The best description it was it was like watching a Facebook thread live, and it, it, that's exactly what it was. Well, so people were, te- you know, like I said, people were texting me asking me like questions about like the like, people were asking me psychology questions on the backside yeah. last night and everything, and and you know they were watching the live on Facebook, which I watched on TV. I said I if my head would have imploded if I'd watched one of the Facebook lives yeah. with all the people streaming the right. commentaries, I wouldn't. I yeah, would have been it. like yeah. I'm out. So, but people were commenting to me about those, and I kept just saying disengage, yeah. stop responding, disengage, yep. stop responding, because where is that going to get you? And all it did was make them more angry, more upset. And I'm like, don't go there because it's just to do exactly what it's doing, which is why I didn't watch Facebook Live because yeah. I knew that was going to happen. Yep. And somebody commented, and I, you probably saw it on mine from, he said, you know, oh, I don't watch Facebook Lives because it gets too intense and too right. angry and i was like yeah that's why i didn't watch because i would have imploded yeah. <laughs> my head would have gone yeah you if, know, you're, if you're empathic like, at all 24 seconds in and i was done if you're empathic at all and i don't mean the the uh, paranormal empathic i'm yes. talking psychologically empathic right. you can't you can't take that for too long you no. just can't take it for too long it's just it... it well so so see i because of what i do for a living mm-hmm. i was able to sit through the whole hour and 40 minutes and it felt like it went by. No, very... I meant that Facebook feed. If you're oh, sitting the there absorbing feed. the Facebook oh. feed, you just yes. can't. Yes. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't sit through the whole. Yeah. That would have been very disturbing to me. And I didn't even have to watch yeah. to know. But the actual, the show itself, I was able to. Notice how, the show. I can't even remember the yeah. last time in watching a debate, I'd be like, the show. <laughs> that's how uh, I describe it. It's the first word, free association. Freud would have a field day. It's the show, because that's what it felt like. It felt like it was an entertaining and that's just awful. So, anyway, <laughs> moving along, <laughs> unless you want to keep talking about the psychology of the of the debate last night. Well, the psychology. Like, yes. Let's... Well, the psychology of the debate was, and it, this is my the purpose of my comment. What do you? What did you expect? Is that this is this election has been a street fight? Oh yeah. And it's been a street fight from the beginning. Right. And. Trump's endearing quality for his supporters is a street fight. Is he's a street fighter? Right. He does business as business is being done. Right. Whereas all the people we've supported in the past would cower. Right. And you know, just you know, you know, McCain, Romney, right. guys who just cowered. They just took it and they didn't respond. And you know, right. it's, it's a quality of Trump's in our mind that he's going to play, you know, play by the ground rules that are set, and he's damn good at it. Right. Well, that well, because he's had he's had many. I mean, this isn't new to him. It's, this nope. is how he's always been. This is a personality piece to him. This is yes. how he's always been. And so, and he pulls. And and you and I have talked about this off air. Is that, you know, people who have that quality and trait pattern, they pull for people who don't have that voice 
and who haven't been able to have that voice to come out when they haven't been able to. So, you know, it's a speaking point for a lot of people who don't get to have that speaking point or have historically been suppressed or oppressed. And he gives a voice to that where, which is, you know, the street fighter or whichever, you know, the, the volatility generator or whatever you want to call it. And the side I lean towards has been on the other end of the street fight. In other words, it's been imposed on us for so long. So when somebody comes up and this is, this way, this is why people who support Trump aren't necessarily supporting the man. No, they're they're like he's a fighter, and I want so I want someone to fight back. Right. We haven't had anybody who fights back, and you know it's not always pretty at times. It's kind of stupid at times, but you <laughs> love that he does it. it, and he does it constantly. He does it with Twitter. He just responds to everything. So in a debate, what do you expect him to do? Well, well right. So I, so that's why when people that's were exa- texting me last is. night asking yeah. me for my opinion about it psychologically, I was saying. Well, you, you should. You knew going in that this was not going to be. He was not going to be able to pull it together on in terms of being somewhat different, having like more presidential decorum, or like you're going. That just doesn't. That doesn't fly for him. That's a, it's not, not how him. He is. B. It's not what anybody wants. It's, right. It, well, not not everybody, but yeah. that that particular side doesn't want that, or that particular you know yeah. microcosm of people doesn't right. want that they want what he gives them and you know i mean and that's kind of what people get for whoever they support you know they go to what they know or they go to what they want right so um but collectively that was the s show i said last night <laughs> yeah yeah it was just but i was, I, I, I was it, trying, and i wasn't even having any wine lou <laughs> i wasn't even drinking anything i should have had wine it was a relief for me <laughs> I, I found this sense of relief watching the timeline on this whole thing because it kind of, for a while it kind of united us. The, again, yeah. the polarization wasn't there. The partisanship wasn't there. Everyone was just looking at it, going, "Oh my God!" Right? You know, and it's like it's like we all get snapped to our senses a little bit on it. Well, so I think, and to your point, and and to what I saw as well, and agree with, is that you you didn't see, and I did not see a lot of this. I think I may have seen one or two comments about you know just being more bipartisan or whatever, but. Sure. But collectively, every person, every person on my hundreds of hundreds of Facebook yeah. people were like that, at least came across that neutral place of like, wow, that was. It's like that it was, emoji with the big eyes. Right, everyone, like, everyone was in oh that. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Everyone was in that <laughs> mode last night. It was, it was funny. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So imagine that we were thinking that. Imagine what the rest of the world watching is thinking. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. Yeah. All my Canadian friends were texting me saying like what just happened i'm like don't ask me yeah the canadians have no standing to give us give us grief so i know but they're there and we're here so they yeah Yeah. um so yeah so it will be very interesting to see kamala harris and um mike pence do their debate next what monday yeah so because the site because talk about you know here we have two people last night psychologically who are you know the street fighter and like the i don't know what you want to call biden but he's more the demure gentleman fighter or whatever however you want to see it you know more passive i guess in that way yeah yep but then you've got such an interesting psychology set with the two that are coming next week yeah and you've got i don't know much about her pence won't go won't go the same way neither of them neither of them will do that i do not expect any oddity of of ill behavior i don't think there'll be name calling throwing anyone shutting anybody up I don't think anyone will be interrupting too much. Like they're both much more. They're younger. Both of them are younger. Yeah. Um, both of them have very different um, ways of going about life. Right. right? So you can tell. Um, and they both have tons of experience, in sort of a comparative way. You know, like if you put Biden and Trump together, well, their experience. You know, if you compare their physical actions in their lives and their experience psychologically, I mean, you've got a businessman. And you've got a politician. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. but with Kamala Harris and Mike Pence, they've both been lifelong politicians, essentially, and they've yeah. come up through. So there's a very different comparison point. They both know how to... I've never seen Mike Pence inappropriately behave or say something. I haven't seen them. There could be there, but say right. something completely out of you know, no. the, the bad spaces or her either. So I imagine it's going to be a much calmer debate in terms of volatility or... <laughs> the fighting at one point i was like somebody's gonna walk across the stage and punch somebody else <laughs> i was just waiting for it i was it. hoping i was just waiting for it yeah. i was like oh it's gonna come <laughs> oh my god yeah. um 
And how sad is that that we have to think like that? So I don't think that Kamala Harris. This is where we are. Are we going to have that? This is where we are as a country psychologically. This yes. is right. This Which is, is the such only a great topic these... for right now for us. Is yeah. that it's, it's it's psychologically that was a representation. I think of we're all on the edge of just punching somebody. This is the <laughs> only level of conversation that we hear in this country right, right. now. Intense, so, intense, 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 which you and I have been talking about for months. Yeah. And you saw it on live TV last night that that's, you know, all the little scenarios that you and I talk about. People on the deck yelling at you on the beach and people telling yeah. me to 50 feet away to make sure that I'm not near them. And yeah, well, it culminated last night on live TV. Yeah. Everyone just waiting for someone to punch somebody. Oh, I, I get a chance to public speak in a debate with people who've called me a racist and said I killed 200,000 people. I'm. They're going to get a reaction too. Exactly. exactly. If that's the baseline of the conversation, here's where we're going. Yes. So I just have to medically clear up something now. Yes. It was said right at the beginning of the debate, regardless of who said it, but we all knew who said it. (laughs) There are 129 million Americans that have pre existing conditions. How do I know that? Because I'm in the field, and this isn't like a new made-up number that somebody pulled out of their butt. Yeah. This, this is an actual... So so when Biden said 100 million, or so whoever said it, there are actually 129 roughly million Americans that have pre-existing conditions, and then there's... Don't quote me on the, this number, but I know the first number is right, but there's probably somewhere between 20 and 50 million elderly who chronically have the pre-existing condition then right. comorbidly go on. So it's high. And of course it is. We have a bajillion people in this country. Love that number, mm-hmm. right? And most people, like I can tell you that I have a huge practice, as you know. I can't think of almost, maybe, maybe 10% of my population who are all pretty healthy, they all have pre-existing conditions of some sort. Diabetes. Um, some kind of heart thing from childhood, some kind of heart defect now, asthma. I have asthma. Um, you know, melanoma that runs in the family, um, ADD, depression, anxiety, um, arteriosclerosis, uh, cardiomyopathy. Like, I'm just like going through my client list in my head, and that's not unusual. So if you if you look at the general population, 129 million people isn't really a lot, but it is. Yeah. And it's, but it is still pre-existing. So I just wanted, because of my medical background, I just wanted to clear up that there are pre-existing are, conditions. Are, are we talking about COVID or pre-existing conditions just pre-existing medically? pre-existing conditions. Oh. This well, is just, the, the, it was just people with pre-existing conditions in the country. How many people have pre-existing conditions? Yes, but that's a non-issue. There's no bias against pre-existing conditions in the president's proposal. Right. So, but it was just that there was a debate, yeah. you know, about like the number. They got back and forth between no, there's not that many, and I'm yeah. like, well, actually, yeah. And, yeah. and that was my, I that was my undelete last night. I was like, I started writing, that's not true. There's 129 roughly, and I was like, delete, 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 because I didn't want to have the debate about it. But essentially, if you go to any of the main websites that report numbers that has been but going along, that's let, what it let is. me ask you this: having yes. an, having an ex-wife who's a breast cancer survivor, survivor yeah. Uh, how many of these pre-existing, and we're getting to policy now, pre-Obamacare, how many of these pre-existing conditions were no-goes or deal-breakers for health care insurance? So so it's interesting. So I can tell you from the psychology aspect because of how we do billing and other things, right? You could so, get health care with diabetes. Right. And so I deal with the secondary diagnosis of the medical, like diabetes, right. heart, you know, breast cancer. I have, you know, women that I treat and things like that. So... Dependent on the insurance carrier, dependent sure. on the age of the person, dep- like depend, depend, right. depend, depend. Then some things are covered and some things are not. Something, you know. So it was really it's been dependent. Now but of I've this seen a of shift. this pie of people with pre-existing condition, yes. what percentage would you say were denied health care outright because of the pre-existing condition? Okay, so I'm going to break it into two different decades that I've been working. So okay, I've been 25 fine. years. So yep. the first. 10 years, I would say many, many more were excluded for certain things. Then the second decade... What 10 years are we talking about? Huh? What 10 years are we talking about? Oh, from... I'm sorry. 1995, 96 to 2006. Okay. And then 2006 to 2017, 18. I've seen it... Like, I'd say it was a shift in that, that more were... Like, cancer was much more included 
in the back decade that I just gave than the front decade. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and now I see a shift again in the past five years wait or a second, so. Wait I'm sorry. You what? The most recent decade, there was a lot more cancer denial? No, or, or a lot the, more cancer approval. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Than before. Um, so that's how I've that's how I've seen it. But then there's been other things that are excluded that were previously included. So, sure. you know, it just depends on on your insurance carrier or the way that they do the writing on it or something like right. that. So it just depends. But I have seen shifts in it, um, whether that follows along with pre-Obamacare, Obamacare, whatever, I've just seen it impact psychology. That's why I end up having it in my office because usually someone who gets denied or, or has financial issues because they've had a long-term condition that hasn't been covered creates a whole different thing yeah. that, that is covered, like anxiety and depression. And then I end up on the phone talking to the insurance carriers usually about if you gave them this care and you gave them payment on it, they wouldn't be sitting in my office right now with uh, having a heart attack right. because they're under so much stress yep. because they now have a $75,000, you know, be- bill for the last month for such and such a treatment. Right. So it's, uh, you know, I'd like to give it a perfect answer, but there's, it's been dependent oh, and it's shifted. Right. It's shifted, but it definitely impacts my care of people because it impacts more people coming because they don't have the support of their funding of their insurance carriers for their conditions. So once we identify the range of the actual problem, then you right. start talking about policy and how you approach that. In other words, do right. you change everybody's policy and all health care to accommodate this, or do you create a program for people who are denied health care in other instances? For right. example, in the insurance industry here in Massachusetts, you have a house that's uninsurable. Right. There is a state program right. that insures that house. Right. For, for people who can't get insurance right. otherwise. Right. So the way you approach it, the scope of the problem is something that's still kind of debatable, and right. the approach, the response to that problem is debatable too, which way you go about it. And you get one side going with a big government take over everything approach, right. and another side that says, okay, maybe we can set something up to help these people who are in a lurch. So, so yeah, and I think, I think that, um, so when you were talking about that, it, what came to my mind, given my practice, is the shift I've seen in addiction treatment. Oh, addiction treatment. Yeah, right. That's, that's, so, yeah, that's so when you were just yeah. saying that, all I kept thinking is, oh, that speaks to so much about addiction treatment and how it's been treated and and or not treated because of, you know, the you know, on one side it's a very very specific stigmatized belief system about sort of mean. You know, people have this bias about like I'm not going to help them, it, it, them. Yep. Um, versus, you know, you see now because we have such an increase, you know, 30% increase in the past seven months in drug addiction, overdose, and alcohol rise. Right. So now the, you know, and people are much more savvy as to, hey, we've got to really do something about this and help. So you see it much more incorporated. You see it in programming. But it's still not encapsulating enough people and catching, you know, all the all the outliers that are sitting on the addiction because they've been pushed out for so long. All right, so because people haven't been, you know, you know, the they, they haven't been counted. They don't count because they're just an addict. You know, that, that yeah. kind of mindset. Um, and that is actually a pre-existing condition. You know, right. people, it, we know this and people have, um, you know, genetic pulls for it. They have genetic line. That's what that means. Um, and then, and then they have, you know, Veterans, for instance, for instance, veterans go off and serve out of, you know, in in country and they're in theater doing, you know, crazy things. They come back and have no other way of coping. They might have a traumatic brain injury. They have PTSD. One of the first things that veterans go to if they have those things is often alcohol and drugs. Right. And then they're often declined care, even though everyone say they aren't, they often decline care. And I see a lot of them come to me because they've been declined certain types of care in a timely manner, even from the system that they got the injury from, Right. because of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so when you were just saying that, I was like, oh, addiction is one of these things that falls yeah. into the non-covered yet covered, pre-existing, not countable... <laughs> Addiction. <laughs> In my mind, addiction needs to be treated as a separate issue at this point. And yeah. the policy that I would would the policy that I would oppose is the policy that was in Obamacare, where everybody buys addiction treatment insurance. Right. So that you're cost shifting. You're taking it from one person, giving it to the people who are addicted. Right. I would fund it through farmer. I would fund it through a tax, through a, through a uh, program with. Most of this addiction is opioid based. 
Right. Because FDA approval was given to opioids. Right. Before, we have no idea of the effect of opioids, and we had even less idea of the effect right. of opioids when they were foisted upon the market. When, right. When, were, when it was put in front of people. Well, this they knew, they, they did know, but not to the extent that they know now. But they did know. But here's yeah. the psychology behind. So here's the psychological aspect of, you know, people. I, getting, I tell this story all the time, and this is year. This is don't only. Don't let me forget where I was yeah, going. This is only three or four years ago now, where I had a small cosmetic surgery. Yep. And I'm telling it's a face cosmetic surgery, and it was basically nine stitches, which tells you how small it was. Right. The doctor wrote me a Vicodin prescription for seven days. There you go. It's like and you, this is, you gotta and this be is out of problem. your mind. Right. But this is an ibuprofen issue. It's not right. a Vicodin issue. Right, exactly. Yeah. And well and so so that's so that's a shift. I talk about this all the time with the class I teach on addiction mm -hmm. to the counselors I'm training for being, you know, counseling and addiction. Um and I lost the point I was gonna make about the other thing, but I'll come back to that. But but that's that's one of the problems is that there's a okay, there's my point. Stigma. There's a stigma still attached to um the any kind of addiction and it, so when it's people, voluntary so if people want stigma. to if people yeah. want to if people want to have a choice to give money or be putting into a fund that would be able you know that you everyone would put into for addiction protection or addiction insurance or things like that one of the big things that's come up in our you know american psych association and medical and all that stuff that we talk about as colleagues is that you know that's almost people don't like to admit that that would be something that they'd have so people don't want to buy into it because it's almost like you know you're checking the box of like oh that's a possibility and there's still that that shame and guilt about i don't want to identify with that yeah. although it's yeah. not as big as it used to yeah. be so that's a huge piece of that psychologically that people don't check that box even if they don't have it it's just like why not take it out because your family has 10 people in it the likelihood is you've got at least a third of them are going to have some addiction issue. And when we talk addiction, this isn't, people always go right to opioids or opiates and dr and alcohol. It's gambling, yeah, obesity, eating yeah. disorders, mm -hmm. shopping, um, sex addiction. Yeah. Addiction falls on, but people go right to this one spot, right. and it's actually a protector for lots of different things because there's treatment for all of those things, but they're not the mainstream, so people don't hear it. But in my office, I see that continuum of all those addictions across yeah. the board, and they're all equal. They're same place in the brain neurologically. They all have the same treatment um, protocol, essentially, the way that we try to manage how to treat it. Um, and people have similar, like, histories of how they got to be where they are in terms of that so why not have everybody doing something that would be preventative it, within taking care of it insurance wise and also um just acknowledging it because it's not this terrible awful thing which it's not i mean it's a terrible awful thing for someone to have but it's not a terrible awful thing to be able to acknowledge and to say hey this is like someone needs the treatment if someone has diabetes you're not going to keep their insulin away from them so why why not treat the addiction piece so when so but in terms of you going to the doctor and getting that 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 happens constantly for people i mean i have people in and out of the hospital all the time yeah. for different things and they come back and they're like oh you wouldn't believe how many pills blah 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 they gave me or they wanted to give me especially teenagers oh you know, yeah teenage athletes things yep. like that they get an injury they're on they're on an opioid painkiller which is seems absurd we right, it, and this it, is a psychological thing for the society in general because right. the acceptable level of pain is zero well, i'm sorry you go in, you have a sprained ankle or or a broken leg right expect a little pain i right, mean you exactly. don't have to be suffering but so it's so so a few years ago probably let's see 2000 i don't know 14 15 i had my appendix out mm -hmm. i had run the bay state marathon the week before Right. So I run the Bay State mar half marathon. Sorry. The and 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 I came across the finish line. And so there, I'm giving you a timeline. So a week in between. And everyone was looking at me like because I was apparently very ashen white. And yeah. everyone's like, what's wrong with her? And, and people were commenting. And I, I just figured I was, yeah. you know, it's like death running the half marathon. Yeah. So, right. But spin forward a week. I was going to get ready to go to the gym on a Friday night after work. And I was coming home and and. And the next thing I know, by Saturday morning, I'm crawling yeah. into the emergency room thinking I'm dying. But, you know, I figured God knows what's wrong. Um, and the 
uh, it's a long, longer story, but I'll keep it a shorter one. The, the, the bottom line was is that there was a back and forth when they finally said, you have a very acute chronic appendicitis. We need to take it out today, which, by the way, I responded with. But I'm getting ready today to go to climb Mount Washington. Can yeah. we do it tomorrow? At which point the doctor said that she lost her mind, which yeah. probably stimulated the conversation that I'm about to tell you about, yeah. which was, we're going to do surgery. We're going to take it out. Is she, are you on anything? And so, and then I was like, no, I don't, I've I've never, so I've never had any thing, nothing. I don't take anything, nothing. I mean, Tylenol, Advil, whatever, but nothing. And so they were like, okay. So apparently when I was being anesthetized, right, they, they were, as I was going under, the story goes that they asked my husband, they're like, so. We really need to know so she doesn't die on the table. Like, she's had this massive amount of pain and she's refused all medication. What is she on so that we don't kill her? And yeah. he was like, she's on nothing. Yeah. And so when I woke up and they were talking to me and the doctor came and she's like, you are one tough yeah. Da, 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 da. And I was like, what? And she's like, she's like, we've never seen anyone refuse medication for any kind of this kind of surgery without, with the amount of pain you were probably in. But for me, internally, I can report that it was painful, but... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I compound fractured my arm when I was eight. I've had this and that. I mean, eh. and that could be just because I was trained as a, you know, elite level gymnast. I was resilient. My parents, who were my coaches, were always on me to, you know, suck it up, buttercup. I don't know. Who cares, you know, but, but the, but they wanted to send me home with a prescription of Vicodin, which I believe that they actually did. But I didn't yeah. take. But I remember like it being not like a couple pills. It was like I don't know, at least twenty pills, I think. But the athlete, ha- the athlete has this attitude. The athlete shows up right. wanting to play. Right. The athlete's not going to tell you how much they're hurting. Right. Right. That's right. that's just generally the way you were. Right. It's, it's a, just it's the one who you went up about business. Yeah. Right. Well, that football player I think we talked about back that I have that's you know doing the NFL pre NFL training. He is, he plays, he's so funny. He played, he broke his ankle. He fractured his shin. He did something. He had like four different injuries and he went to the playoff game and played and kept his mouth shut except to me and his, and his ortho because we, we basically psyched him up and taped him up and cause he was like, I'm playing and because he didn't want to pass up his opportunity to make yeah. it to the NFL. So it's, you know, so it's a matter of mindset and he didn't take a thing. Yeah. Plus, there's this there's this obligatory thing. I mean, I, just me in men's league softball. I tore my hamstring one time, mm-hmm. and I'd done hamstrings before. Right. And it's painful. Oh yeah. But oh, I yeah. I can go, I can go, no problem. And yeah. so I you know compressed and taped up and and went out and played a different position because I couldn't play center field the, right. way, the way I was playing. And I, after the game, I was sitting there. I was going on a picnic with my girlfriend at the time, and I put shorts on. She was walking behind me on the path, and she said, "Oh my god." Is what is it? I was black and blue from the butt all the way down to the to, to the your, to, to the knee. That's how yeah. bad the tear was. Yeah. And it's like, no, I got to play. It's just, and it's just, you got to be there for the team. You just want to play. You just, right. you just put it aside, you know. And so, and so that gets into like the mental toughness. I mean, we've sort of shifted over here, but gone from political yeah. <laughs> debates to torn hamstrings. But, yeah. but that's the mental toughness aspect of people who are performers at a high level. Um, and not even have to be at a high level. You can still have, you know, recreational sports that people are really competitive and they have a great mental toughness and confidence about them that they aren't going to be likely to have a pull towards, you know, a, a pill addiction or yep. jump to the alcohol as a way to manage just because of who they are as a person. And that unfortunately isn't for everybody, obviously, but, you know, given what you just said and my experience and many other athletes that I know, I mean, they go to you know, how much can I do to fix myself through nutrition, yeah. good, healthy things, getting good rehabilitation through PT and occupational therapy in some cases, you know, um, because that's the healthier, holistic route to go. Yeah. And it's Instead not of that... jumping into the pharma, which is, because yeah. those, those things, I mean, to be quite honest, and people will debate what their fact is fact, is that those are Band-Aids. They aren't. They aren't fixing the problem. Right. If you tear your, if you tear your hamstring and you take Vicodin because it's painful, you still have to go through the surgery. You still have to go through the PT. You still have to stay hydrated and eat yep. well and then exercise correctly. And if you're taking, if you're taking something opiated or you're taking something that's not going to be conducive to healing, which that does, 
not help. It, it actually makes it, you know, degenerate a little bit here right. and there. Then you're not setting yourself up. They're band-aids that are temporary. They're only supposed to be for temporary use, not for long-term use. It's kind of like methadone clinic wasn't supposed to be for long-term use. Right. Suboxone that's now yeah. was not created for forever. No, it's, it's a supposed lifestyle. To be, yeah. Right. It's, it's not yeah. supposed to be relied upon but psychologically, unfortunately, I mean, that's why I talk about all these little pieces when we talk every time is that they all end up being intertwined on top of each other because they become psychological, their codependency, their relationship to the drug and to the condition becomes synonymous. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for people, even the strongest, most resilient, high performing people, when they get into that pattern to break out. It's so difficult. Yeah. So, so difficult. So it's easier if we don't push that on people. And to your yep. point, because psychologically, you're just setting a person up to suffer because once they get in, and it's so quick, people don't realize yep. the opiated medication line, all the different pieces, you know, Oxy, Vicodin, Percocet, that line of the family, you only have to do that a few times to be like, huh. Yeah. I don't like it the first time, but by the second or third time, not so much. And I, and I always love hearing when people say, oh, I took it and then it didn't make me feel right. So I threw it away. I'm like, yes. Yeah. You know, because I always give the pre-warning of this is not something you should be doing yeah. for too long because it's not going it, to, because it interferes with the pattern of healthy living. Yes. So, but people are afraid because they go into, it's kind of like the COVID test. People are all freaked out. Oh my God, the thing's going to yeah. go up my nose. I'm like, oh, for God's sake, suck it up, buttercup, because it's not <laughs> that big of a deal. And it really isn't. Yeah. Um, but you would think that people are going to die that, I just think it's funny. Yeah, but I, you're driving up to some girl going. at a CVS sticking a swab right. up your nose, which isn't the, the greatest situation. Right. But athletes don't feel entitled to zero pain. Athletes right. play in pain a lot. Right. They deal with pain. Plus, the other thing with athletes and the thing for me was you take something strong like an opioid or Vicodin, mm -hmm. and that my urge is still going to be to play. Yes. And all that's going to do is open me up for a worse injury, injury because I the pain is telling you something. Right. The pain is governing you that's, you know... You should listen to it. Right. Your body is, ta so that's the holistic part of your, you know, your body knows how to heal itself. So when you take Vicodin, you take an opiate to cover the pain, or you take something like gabapentin to cover the pain, right, Neurotin, um, then you're, you're not feeling what's really happening, yeah. and then you further injure. Right. And Plus my feeling too. You don't too. have the shutoff valve to be able to know, you know, the, the limbic system, right? So when you physically hurt, it signals the limbic system, which is yeah. your emotional center, to register like, it's you know, it's, it's your thinking part of your brain to go, ooh, that's painful, that's not going to be good, that's going to make me feel anxious, that's going to make, like, it, they all work together. And all of a sudden, now you can say, I have to quit for now. Like when I kept running on my shin for a year yeah. and a half before it was almost a clean breakthrough right. and through, yeah. you know, I was in pain, but it finally took to that point. And I wasn't taking anything other than, you know, Advil and this and that. And finally it was, I had enough emotional pain. That's what takes change, right? You have to get to an emotional state of pain to, I just, I'm laughing because my, the doctor, I remember her saying like, you've been running on this for a year and a half, yeah. you know, because you get to that level finally and say, okay, enough is enough. But if I probably had been taking something, yep. I probably would have cleaned, clearing through, broken it because I would have just kept running on it. And a theory I've had, and you can tell me if, if I'm wrong, you talked about the limbic system. The theory I've had is if you mute the pain, it stops the body's regulatory yes. in terms of bringing resources to the injured area to heal it. Correct. Right. Correct. Is that true? Yes. Because that's something I've always thought. Nope. That's so that I mean, so that's, a you know, the simplified way of putting it. But essentially, that's exactly what happens because yeah. you're you're rerouting the signals to f that they don't have to go there and tell you that you're in pain, you're in pain, you're in pain. Right. And as soon as you take it away and you don't have it and you start going through withdrawal, say you've been taking it for two or three weeks. Now the pain comes back. Why? Because the spinal cord essentially if you go with the pain gate theory right. that's one of the main theories of pain is that now it's got to redivert the pain signal go back to that spot it's right. kind of, you know people always ask me they say how come when i have a pain in my foot a pain in my hip and a headache and i take advil it cleans up the headache but my pain in my foot doesn't go away right because it yeah. because it the the pain gate theory is it will go to the thing that it knows 
that needs the most care for first and the other things will get taken second. I mean, this is a loose version of the story of how right. this works, but it knows because of the way that it diverts the signals and then gets re-regulated. So, so you delay the body's system of healing itself. Right. If it's an ankle or a foot like you talked about and you dull the pain, you're out on it, re-aggravating it right. constantly. So right. you're setting the body back. It's not getting the full resources. You're just making the injury worse, worse. for a longer period of time. Right. Which is, so go back to our, the podcast I had a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Calhoun. We were talking about the ARP wave technique. Mm -hmm. Instead of using medication, that's a rewiring in a healthy way of the nerve system to reroute the healing in a process that's without medication, that's natural and alternative, so that by, you know, putting the ARP wave on the the spot it's retraining the musculature and the nervous system to send signals to the brain and back and forth to regroup to heal it faster as opposed to truncating the ability for it to do it on its own so it's getting the more attention from the right. brain right and so more more healing more of the healing more resources the healing happens faster yeah. which is why you can get someone up on their feet really quickly mm, interesting as opposed to you start medicating it and it's the person's down for the count because it's not doing it's not doing any repair work. So it's like a flare gun for the injury. Right. It's like, hey, right. <laughs> we need right. some help here. Right. Yeah. So, Interesting. So so it's so it's very but it but the pain so when you look at pain medication in psychology, right, it changes the way, you know, people I mean people use it so they can play. Yep. Right. Yep. But it's one of the worst things that you can do because it just it's it feeds that false sense of security and, and certainly leads people I've I can't tell you how many athletes I've had in my office over the years that had to detox from it, rehab from it, relapse from it, re-detox, re-rehab, um, and still keep playing at a professional or Olympic level. And giving giving this to kids it just seems, it's just so wrong in retrospect. I, how, well, could, how could you give a kid, a high school athlete, or a, even worse, middle school athlete, uh, an opioid. I mean, well, it just well as you ridiculous. know, I'm not a believer in that because yeah. the way that the the you know the kinesiology and the physiology of the body works, right, and how it interplays with the mm -hmm. the mental functioning, which is all together, that the brain's developing over time. So whether it's and certainly not likening it to exactly the same thing, but whether you're putting in a load of sugar mm -hmm. or a load of Vicodin, right. you're changing the development of the brain. But there are some things that clearly are going to stunt the growth. I'm using stunt the growth as, as my own term, but you're going to, you're going to, you're going to redirect the development process of putting X amount of medication in a brain of a child or a, an adolescent or someone youthful. Your brain's still developing until you're 20, 23 years old. Right, yeah. So you start adding in that at 14, 15, 16. Oh, and then you're on Adderall or Concerta for your, now yeah. you've got all these pieces that are shifting the ability for the brain to do what it's supposed to do and send the right signals and be able to do all those things. Now, that's not to say that people who need to have some, like, you know, if you have ADD and you're not doing the behavioral modifications and you need it to really focus and you have to do it within obviously some good parameters. So, because I, you know, that's clear for some kids. Um, but when you start adding in like anything that's, you know, a benzodiazepine for anxiety in a kid, or you add in something that has to do with an opiate for an mm -hmm. injury, the brain development gets very shifted, yeah. very that, distorted. And that's high tide for brain development, isn't right. it? Because at 14, 15, 16, there's a pruning process where the, the brain, you know, so the brain I say jokingly. So the abstract reasoning, the brain's shifting into ab the ability to have multiple concepts and hold and, and do reciprocation yeah. in a different way than they were able to do in a younger developmental stage. Yeah. Having more hypothesis thinking, leading them down a path of more executive functioning that's at a higher level. Right. And not being, you know, um, stifled in that or feeling that foggy feeling because that's what happens when yep. you do that. I, I was told at one time, and I kind of carried along, at 14, 15, 16, teenagers are literally brain damaged. <laughs> I mean, they're pruning back the executive function, right? The executive right. function is what's suffering at that period right. of time. But it's it's pruning back to rewire the brain. To rewire so it, right. Anything that you introduce, like, uh, you know, psychotropics or, right. or uh, opioids or things like that is going to affect that rewiring. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 and much like, you know, people who give their kids or allow their kids to drink coffee at 12, you know, it, it's the same thing. I mean, kids like to have I mean, chocolate Bull. ice cream, you know, coffee has caffeine in it too. Yeah. But if you're having your 12 year old who has ADD, for instance, and is an athlete drinking a Red Bull. Yeah. Mm, 
right? Because yeah. people are just like, oh, whatever. But it's actually like, you know, that has brain change chemicals in it. Yeah. Um, it's like messing with the blueprint of the brain right. while the brain's trying to rebuild. You're, right. you're shifting the game on them right. all the time. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So and, and so if we just take it at the basic level so that people that don't relate to drugs, right, in general, but we just take it at that basic sugar level, right, like yeah. we talked about last week. If you ha- if you have kids who are eating cleaner, you're going to have a healthier brain function, the cognitive processor, the executive functioning, the yep. ability to think clearer and further and future oriented from the present is way better. You start having kids with tons of sugar input and uh, processed foods and we know it's not like it's new science. We've known mm-hmm. and we still know that that just lags the brain and kids and what do they do they go back for more to get the recharge the recharge the recharge and what does that do for psychology of the kid it's it's depressing it yep. makes the kid kind of drag like i can't function without it i can't tell you how many kids i've had over the past like 20 years say to me you know 13 14 years old like i didn't have my coffee today and i'm like what did you just say <laughs> you know and yeah. i have kids that come in with their coffees into my office and i'm like what are you drinking today you know because i'm always interested and no judgment but i often educate them you know they'll have like a coffee that's this size but it will be you know you can see the sugar yep. to here so yep. there's probably 16 sugars then it's like you know cream yeah and then probably this much coffee and I'm like, let's have a chat, you know? And then, <laughs> yeah. and it's interesting because oftentimes parents will come back. I've never had an issue because of the way I deliver it, but I'm just like, you know, that's a lot of sugar and a lot of, you know, milk product. And on ADD, we know that that's not a good thing. Oh, right? really? So, so, milk? right. Yeah. So, so it's just, oh, and then, and then a, and a smidge of extra stimulant on top of their Adderall. <laughs> yeah. So, and you, and then people wonder why, you know, the person at, four o'clock in the afternoon can't do their homework because the medication's worn off they've hadn't haven't had more of their caffeine and their sugar and now they're dropping because now their brain's going i'm done for the day but we've been told take a pill and everything would be okay right so so we ignore all this underlying right structure here and so i'm i so again i'm I'm in favor of, there are kids absolutely and adults who absolutely need the extra help with the medication and they aren't doing the behavioral modification and it helps keep them out of trouble. It helps keep them from being impulsive. But I always educate my clients and their parents and adults about what the trade-offs are on doing that at the specific ages of like knowing like, hey, just make sure you know that, you know, you should take holidays from this a little here and there, like over the summer or over the weekends if you can. And, you know, just so they know what's happening with the brain and what they're doing nutritionally um, from an integrative medical psych perspective. So they know, um, and people just don't typically stop to think about that and how important that is for functioning and the brain development. And you can do this simultaneously, right? Yes. You can take the you can take the medication, and you can change yep. mm-hmm. uh, change the things so that you become less reliant on the medication. Hopefully, well, so that's so or that's that the medication is more efficient. So exactly. So yeah. the so the so the big thing about like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is usually the that is the go to therapy theory technique that we use yep. across the board for most things. Yep. In combination with medication, often has the best outcome empirically validated. We right. just know that. So can we get as good a result from CBT, the, the therapy techniques? Yes, but you have, there's, it's very dependent on the person, their motivation level, and so on and so forth. But when you put the combination together, we often get the faster, quicker result. Right. But it's only so that you can teach the person the skills so that you can take the medication back out. Because the medication becomes a crutch and people tend to ignore right. the practices that right. led them because to the then problem. It's like, oh, well, I feel better, so why do I have to do that? Right. And then you stop the medication, then they have no skills, and then yep. they have to go back on the medication. So the whole premise of the medication is to be like an antidepressant or anti-anxiety is to be put in so that the person has the brain calmness to learn the skills, yeah. bring up the ability and the behavioral modification to then be able to back out the medication with that level. It's like the you know the pure sense of being able to treat oneself. But that's not what you get in a doctor's office. But that's not what we see. That's not yeah. what I see. And, yeah. and I have to explain that process. And, and it, you get you take know, the pill. Everything will be right. okay. Right. And and you know and and I'm you know I make it so that people figure you do whatever you want to do. But I'm going to educate you to what your options are. I never push. Yeah. You know that. I, I it's just here's the four options, 
and you got to let me know what to do given what we know. And I always encourage people, go out and search WebMD. Go to psychmed.com. Like, look at the facts on this before you just take my word for it. Make sure you educate yourself. But I always put it out there because I usually get that commentary of, I didn't know that. No one ever told me that. I didn't know that wasn't going to happen. I didn't know this was going to happen. Oh, I thought you could do this and that would Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you know, a big part of the job is to educate so that people just have more information to make better decisions for themselves. Um, and I think that's super important in, in this day and age so that people have options and they know. And the poster child for this, what everyone can relate to, is the whole concept of diet, which right. is a losing proposition because diets are about denial and right. denial doesn't work. Right. What you have to do is you have to be educated to the point where right. you consciously make the decision. Decisions. You have to make the decision. You're not denying yourself. You're evaluating a decision, right? Yeah, right, and 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 that's why I think because people don't people don't last in denial, denying. No, and that's things. why diets fail. Yeah. Diets themselves fail, and lifestyle changes, lifestyle changes, little bits at a time last forever. Right, because you're you're committing to something that feels good to you as opposed to a quick fix thing that you think is going to work and then it fails because what you just said. Right. All right, so Lou, the yeah. time on my clock says we have to end but before we end mm -hmm. very exciting next week oh okay. next week yep we have a special guest coming um so frank simonetti the um boston bruins national hockey league mm -hmm. um, amazing player is going to be joining us he's going to come and talk to us about um a couple different things you know he has a great foundation um that's with the Boston Bruins alumni hockey, um, and he does a lot of charity work, and mm -hmm. he's a head of um, one of the heads of um, the charity foundation, and they do work with veterans and uh, uh, special ops guys and Navy SEALs, Excellent. and and we're going to talk about all those really cool things and also um, some of the things that are going on around in the community that if people want to get involved in, they do um, in terms of that. I don't know if he'll talk so much about hockey, but I'm sure you'll have questions for him if you want to, but people certainly can tune in yep. and it's, it will be fun because he's a super fun person to talk to and he's a lovely friend. Lovely. I did that on purpose so that you knew that I don't just <laughs> yeah. not mean it because right. he is a lovely friend to yep. um, me and my family. And so he will be joining us next week. So tune in next week to hear myself with Frank Simonetti. All right. You guys have a great week. Welcome to October. Yeah. And it's getting darker. We'll talk about that oh, too. Oh, yeah. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> All right, you guys. Have a good week.